Well, welcome this morning. Yeah, it's blowing. It's blowing warm air, but I don't know. I don't know why it's so uh, so cold. Has everybody got the notes this morning? Okay. We're uh, at lesson fourteen. Lesson fourteen, and uh, sorry I missed last week. My wife had this hip replacement surgery. But she's doing well. She's about a week and a half into it, and uh, things are going well. The only problem is, uh, I guess normally you you have a walker that you walk on, and you walk like this. But they only want her to put half of her weight on her on her hip. So some doctors have this procedure. I don't know. You know, it's how they feel about healing and so forth. So she's got to walk like this. And she's got to do it for four weeks, so this makes it very difficult and, and so forth. But she's doing, we do physical therapy every day, exercises three times a day, and so it's a full day doing that. But but every day she's getting, you know, stronger and she's getting less pain, it's less pain and so forth. So I think she'll be fine. It's just a matter of, once we, especially we get through the first four weeks, we'll be in pretty good shape, I think. You're going to develop a whole new skill set. Yes. Well, I've done this before. She had neck surgery uh, three years ago January three years ago and that was a number of weeks too alright we're looking at uh, chapter 10 today but before we do that we have a quiz but you know it's been a long time it's been a long time since we uh, thing, you, knew, you knew this thing's not going to work when I If I can make it work here. Okay. There it is. So this is a long time ago. How many weeks has it been? It was two weeks for Christmas and then I was gone. So it's been three weeks. So you got to remember about the law of Christ. This was back on chapter 9. The law of Christ and the law of Moses are basically identical. False. The law of Moses is those... All those 639, 619 commandments and all the civil, ceremonial. The law of Christ is the moral law, basically, that's reestablished in the New Testament, restated in the New Testament that we keep. The law of Christ and God's eternal moral law are basically identical. Yeah, true, basically identical. I don't know if I maybe if I <clears throat> said that a little too strongly, but there are obviously things in Christ. There are things in Christ law that are probably, I wouldn't say are in the eternal law in the sense of there are some things in this dispensation that we are to do, like there's you know, there's things about meeting on the Lord's day that wouldn't be necessarily have been eternal in the sense like that, but they're basically, basically the, the law of Christ is God's moral law. God, uh, Paul accommodated his gospel message to fit his audience. Hmm? No, it's the key thing, the word there is message. He didn't change his message. He didn't change the content. That's what I'm trying to trick you at here. He didn't change his message, you know. Now, he was willing to to uh, change his style of dress and eating and how he operated and so forth. Uh, but... Uh, Um, 
Um, <laughs> want to do it. Uh, when Paul says he lives in such a way so as not to be not be disqualified, so as to not be disqualified for the prize, he's concerned for his own perseverance. Hmm? Yes, he is concerned for his own perseverance. <clears throat> That's exactly what he's talking about. So even the great apostle is concerned about continuing in the faith. Now, it's not like he goes around thinking, hey, I'm going to lose my salvation, I'm going to lose my salvation. I don't think that. But I don't. that doesn't mean I can just sin all I want to. You know, I'm concerned that I will continue faithfully to the end. Because a true Christian will persevere in good works and faith. So when Paul says there, I don't want to be disqualified from the eternal prize, doesn't mean he's living in fear all the time, but it is, he, he says, I have to keep myself under self-control. I have to watch my life. I can't just live a uh, sinful life and expect to go to heaven. I have to obey God. I, uh, God expects obedience and so forth and so on. So that is uh, true. All right. So we're looking at... Uh, uh, section B here, food sacrifice to idols. Remember the problem here was that in the ancient world, in all the ancient world, uh, most people ate meat when they went to the temples in their hometowns. That is, meat was fairly expensive. A lot of people, poor people, didn't have meat. And so they would get meat when they would go to festivals and parties and other things at the temple. Now, these people, temples were the center of ancient life. There's at least 26 in Corinth in Paul's day, we know of. They're the center of life. Uh, everybody everybody uh, worshipped the gods. So, Corinth had a, god, had a patron goddess, Aphrodite. Athens had Athena and so forth. So, you had your various gods. If you were a member of a trade guild, you would have your gods... <laughs> And so everybody worshipped all these gods. And so if you came home to your mom and dad and said, Hey, I'm, I'm a Christian now, and I'm not going to worship the gods, they would, be, they'd just, they would just think you're crazy. In fact, uh, if the townspeople found out about it, and then there was a flood, they would say, Okay, the problem is you, you, you weren't worshiping the gods. You, know, you weren't doing sacrifices to the gods. And so the gods had brought this upon us. So it's very difficult for people to give up this going to the temples for whatever purposes. And they would be invited there for festivals, feasts, birthday parties, celebrations, other things. They would want to go because that's where you would have meat. And almost all the meat that was sold in the marketplace, there were meat markets, but the meat markets didn't really do any slaughtering. The meat markets just sold meat. Most all the meat was slaughtered in the temples by a pagan priest, and then what wasn't eaten there was sold in the marketplaces in places in Corinth. Now the Jews, uh, they were forbidden. The rabbis forbade them from eating that kind of food. It had to be properly prepared by Jewish, so they had their own meat and so forth. And so uh, that's where the question comes up here is, what about this food sacrifice to idols? The Corinthians want to continue to go to these temples. And Paul says, no, you can't go to these temples because this is idolatry. 
you're worshiping idols when you go there. Remember, the Corinthians have said, well, idols don't really exist. There's no such thing as idols. There's only one true God and so forth. But Paul will say in this chapter, guess what? Uh, there's really demons behind these idols. These, these, these false idols are demons. So we've been looking at various sections here, the basis of Christian conduct. That is, Paul is concerned in chapter 8 about people saying, you know, these idols are nothing. I can go to the temple. I can eat this meat. I can celebrate. And it doesn't affect me as a Christian. And he's concerned there about what effect they're going to the temples will have on other Christians. Some Christians will see them eating meat, he says in chapter 8, at the idol temple, and they might be drawn into idolatry again. It's one thing to say, I'm just going there and I'm not, uh, you know, I don't care about the idols and everything, but, but a lot of people still, they just came out of pagan idolatry and they can be drawn back in. So Paul says, you can't go there because the effect it's going to have. Paul gives his own example. Paul says, you should be willing, because you love your brother, to give up certain things. You might have the right to do things in your Christian life, but you should be willing in order to help your fellow Christian mature and grow, maybe to give up some things that normally you would be free to do. And uh, that's what he's talking about in chapter 9. He uses himself as an example of a person. And he ends chapter 9 with kind of a warning about the need to persevere. He says, uh, the problem with this going to the temple engaging in what and what goes on there is sexual immorality there's a lot of sinful things going on at the temple Paul says you just can't do that fragrantly and, and just just ignore what that's what that's doing to you spiritually Paul uses his own example and there in chapter in the chapter 9 he has that warning there about what happens if you don't persevere if you don't continue in the faith so we come to um, Chapter 10, which is a conclusion of all this discussion, and the conclusion is you can't go to the temples. And I say here, Paul concludes his own example of self-sacrificial behavior and returns to the present problem, the insistence of some of the Corinthians on attending the cultic meals in the pagan temples. The problem is idolatry pure and simple. So Paul speaks directly to those who are opposing him on this matter. Now first, he's going to use some Old Testament examples. He's going to use the example of Israel to warn the, 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 Israelite, the Corinthians of the grave danger that they're in of pursuing this idolatry. And that's in verses 1 through 13. Now I've actually broken the thing down here into three sections. But in the first 13 verses, he's talking about the example of Israel. I'm going to use the example of Israel. What happened to them when they, when they went into idolatry? Remember the golden calf and so forth uh, after they came out of uh, Egypt and so on. He's going to use that incident. And then in uh, verses 14 through 22, Paul is going to prohibit going to the temples. He's Up to this point, he, he's been arguing, you shouldn't do this because this is bad for your fellow Christian. But now he's just going to say, this is wrong, pure and simple. And he's going to explain why that is with the, what I just told you about demons are behind these idols so we see the example of Israel here in chapter 10 verses 1 through 5 um, 
I say here, in the preceding argument, Paul urged the Corinthians to run the Christian life in order to obtain the prize, the crown that will last forever. Remember, that's what he said. Everyone who competes in the game uses the example of the games as the running the Christian life. Everyone who competes in the game goes into a strict training, the Isthmian Games, the Olympic Games. Um, they do it to get a to a crown that will not last. But we we're in, we're in a we're on we're on our own spiritual journey. We're in a race, and we're our goal is the eternal crown. Now it's not like we earn it. <laughs> it's a gift of God by God's grace. We get eternal life, but the faith that we receive and the life we receive changes us and causes us to live differently. And therefore, we cannot live this sinful lifestyle. So therefore, he says, uh, I strike a blow to my body, to myself, and make my slave so that after I preach to others, I won't be disqualified for the prize. So Paul is saying, I keep myself under control. I, I try to live an obedient, godly life. Because, you know, a person who makes a profession of faith and then headlongs into sin... We have questions. <laughs> Did they really get new life? Did they were they really regenerated or not? It's always a question. It's difficult to tell sometimes. I, I mean, I I think about a fellow that I know I've known for forty years, and uh, he was a deacon in a church, and he he was a model Christian. I thought divorced his wife. Got remarried, divorced her, got remarried, divorced her, you know, left his children. And this went on for years and years, but finally he came back to the Lord. Amazingly, you know. He's just a very dedicated kind of Christian guy now, you know. But it's troubling when you see that kind of behavior and there's no repentance for a long time. Now he was under conviction for a lot, you know, this amount of time, but you won't, we don't know what's going on inside this kind of person always. So I say in the preceding argument, Paul urged the Corinthians to run the Christian life in order to obtain the prize, the crown that will last forever. The application of the imagery to himself in 926... So I've washed my hands so much because I don't want to give Pansy any diseases or anything, you know. That I can't get my fingerprint stuff to work anymore. <laughs> and I've changed it, but my hands are so raw now. Um, serves as a war- uh, excuse me, serves as a warning uh, that those who fail to exercise self-control may also fail to obtain the prize. Now, in 10, thir- 10 1 through 13, Paul forcefully pursues that warning. So Paul warns now the Corinthians of the serious consequences of persisting in their present idolatry. The argument is divided into two parts. The first section, 1 through 5, Paul puts forth Israel as typical of those who failed to obtain the prize. Now this illustration that he's going to use from Israel works kind of well for the Apostle Paul uh, because in the history of Israel, Israel had a sort of baptism and a sort of Lord's Supper. Um, That is, Israel, like the Corinthians, had spiritual privileges, yet they failed to persevere, because he's going to talk about those incidents where 
thousands of Israelites were killed and their bodies were strewn in the desert. They didn't enter the promised land. Why not? Idolatry. So Paul says Israel is, is a good example. It's a helpful illustration because they had, as we'll see, they had, they had a kind of a meal and a drink and so forth. We'll see how that works. In this section, 6 through 13, in the next second section, the first section he uses Israel as an example. And then in 6.13, Paul applies this illustration from the life of Israel directly to the Israelite, to the Corinthians, I'm sorry. The nature of this argument suggests that possibly those who think they are standing uh, do so on the basis of somewhat of a magical view of the ordinances. Remember, he'll say later on in 10.12, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's not, this is not perfectly clear, but it's possible that the, that the Corinthians had sort of a magical view of the ordinances. That They said, you know, we've been baptized. We've taken the Lord's Supper. We're members of the First Baptist Church of Corinth. So therefore, we're protected. We're saved. We're going to heaven. If we go to the temple, so what? You know what I mean? I mean, we get this. You, this, this, is a, this can happen to Christians. And we, we always have this problem because you talk to people, <clears throat> they'll say, oh yeah, I was saved when I was 12 years old. But you have, have you been to church? No, I haven't been to church in 50 years, but <clears throat> I was saved back when I was 12, you know, and there's just no evidence. <clears throat> there's no nothing, you know. They're just relying upon the fact. Now, this, of course, happens in denominations. I have a good friend who's a Lutheran, but a very good Christian guy, and I've been studying a lot about Lutheran Lutheranism. But Lutherans, like a lot of denominations, baptize infants. But Lutherans believe that when you baptize an infant, the baptism creates faith in the infant. So Lutherans believe in justification by faith alone. You say, how can they do that with an infant? Because when you baptize an infant, the infant has faith. Luther taught that. So he can hold a justification by faith alone because the infant has faith. Now, Lutherans believe you can lose it. So as the child grows up, it needs to be confirmed, confirmation. You need to confirm that you have this faith, but you can lose it. Any Lutheran can lose their faith. Lutherans don't believe in eternal security, as we would say. So you can lose it. So the point is, we, you know, I've, I mean, many people like this who will say, are you going to heaven? Well, I'm a member of this church. Well, we are... Uh, I was baptized. Uh, you know, I, I trusted Christ. You know, they're, they're looking at something that they're holding on to. They're, they're not really trusting in their faith in Christ, their trust in Christ to save them. So that can happen, and that might be what we have here. So it may be that the Corinthians' argument uh, included some reference to their own security through the ordinances which identified them as Christians. And so therefore, if I go to the idol temple, it doesn't make any difference. I've, I've been baptized, I'm a member of the church, so it doesn't make any difference. Verse 1. Um, <clears throat> For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all baptized under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The word for that begins this chapter indicates that Paul is giving an explanation or further clarification from the preceding chapter where Paul spoke 
using himself as an example of the possibility of disqualification for the prize. So the Corinthians are to run the race as those intent on winning. That is, they have to exercise self-control in all things, lest they end up being disqualified. For, he now says, in verse chapter 10, verse 1, for, he explains, Scripture itself gives some examples, some very clear examples, of people who didn't exercise self-control, who didn't discipline themselves, who didn't live a godly life, who didn't exercise self-control in the matter of idolatry, and therefore they failed to gain the prize, the Israelites. So in this discussion that follows, Paul relates Israel's crossing of the Red Sea and their being sustained by manna and water from the rock as a sort of analogous to the Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. But in spite of Israel's privileges, Paul concludes that the majority fell under God's judgment in the desert. Paul's point seems to be here that Israel genuinely sort of prefigures us Christian when it comes to the experience of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's kind of a, an, an analogous situation. <clears throat> they prefigure us. Be sure that they don't prefigure you in idolatry. They had these spiritual privileges and they went into idolatry. You've got spiritual privileges. Don't end up in idolatry and subsequent judgment. Paul begins here, I say, his discussion by uh, noting that all were under the cloud and that all passed through the sea. He's talking here about Exodus 14, 19 through 22. Remember the incident when the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them, the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Through the night the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea. We have these constant references to the cloud and the sea. And as we've seen here, uh, that's what Paul is referring to when he says that they all uh, pass, were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. So the cloud and the sea are just ways of referring to the Exodus uh, crossing here that are common in Scripture, as we'll see. So I say here, which he then interprets as the Corinthians being baptized into Moses and in the sea. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, that our ancestors passed through the cloud, passed through the sea, and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. As I say here, the point seems to be that just as the Corinthians' Christian life began with baptism, so Israel's deliverance from Egypt began with a kind of baptism. However, as Paul will go on to say, that did not keep them from falling into idolatry and thus falling short of the prize. The language baptized into Moses should not be pressed to mean actual baptism. Remember, the word baptism means to be immersed. Uh, therefore, it has a, a metaphorical meaning of being to be identified with. Christ asked his disciples, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Which means, he was saying, can you experience the cross as like, I'm, can you have that experience? Can you be immersed in that experience? <clears throat> so, 
the, the Israelites were identified. They were baptized into Moses. They were connected with Moses. Baptism connects us with Christ. They were connected with Moses. So the language shouldn't be pressed to mean actual baptism. Christian baptism is an identification with Christ, the church's deliverer. So Moses was Israel's deliverer. The language here about the cloud and the sea is apparently incidental to Paul's point. Paul just keeps saying it over and over again. Most likely these two images of the cloud and sea just became interwoven as a way of speaking of the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. And Paul picks up those kinds of things. That is, we see it constantly. And when you look at references throughout the Old Testament, you divide the sea. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud. He divided the sea. He made the cloud. So whenever... The, the Old Testament uh, writers talk about the Exodus crossing. They talk about the cloud, the sea, the cloud, the sea, the cloud, the sea. So we shouldn't make anything special about here. It's just that Paul is talking about that experience. Verse 3. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. In the same way as the previous baptism, reference to baptism, Paul now describes the Israel experience of miraculous bread. Remember, this is Exodus 16. Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. People will go out each day. They will test them and they will follow my instructions. And so they went out and they got this bread. Remember that they, they said, what is it? They didn't know what it was. And it was, you know, rain down that manna from heaven, remember, that uh, came down. So they could collect it six days a week. And on, on the Friday, they collected twice as much for the Sabbath day and so forth like that. So, um, he describes Israel's experience of the miraculous bread and the miraculous drinking of the water from the rock. This is Exodus 17, when the people were thirsty at Rephidim. There was no water. They said, give us drink. And Moses cried out to the Lord, why? What am I going to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Verse 5, Lord said, go in front of the people, take you some of the elders, take in your hand the staff, which you struck the Nile with, Strike the rock, the rock at Horeb here, and this water will come out and the people will have water. That's the incident he's referring to here when Paul says they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. So uh, this miraculous drinking of the water from the rock as a form of spiritual eating, viewing it as analogy of the Lord's Supper. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Now the term spiritual, by that term spiritual, Paul means uh, food and drink given to Israel that were supernaturally given. Sometimes the word uh, spiritual means that, like even uh, Romans 7. I know the law is spiritual. It comes from God. It's supernatural. It came from God, but I'm unspiritual. So when Paul says they ate that, sup- that spiritual food, that food that came from God, and that drink that came from God, that's what they were eating. Um, so the food was not figurative or allegorical it was real but its real significance went beyond the mere physical as the last part of verse 4 will explain for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ Paul reinforces the fact that the Israelites received spiritual food and drink by interpreting their experience of water from the rock as being connected with Christ By connecting the rock with Christ, Paul probably intends to indicate how guilty Israel was. They rejected Christ himself 
and they're following after idols. So Paul also wants to tie these events in the life of Israel even more closely to the Corinthians' own situation. You see, because they too are testing Christ. You'll talk later here about we should not test Christ as some of them did. Chapter 10, verse 20. Are we trying to arouse the the Lord's jealousy? Well, remember, they were testing uh, God. They were testing, they were complaining and testing God. Moses struck the rock. And it says they drunk from that rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, notice I say the rock is called spiritual in the same sense just described. It comes from God, supernaturally given by God. And Paul says it was ultimately the pre-existence of Christ who was sustaining them. The incident with the rock is described in Exodus 17. We just looked at that where they struck the Moses struck the rock and so forth. Exodus 17 refers to this rock at Horeb here in verse 6, from which came water that Moses that came out when Moses struck the rock. There's another incident that occurs. This is at the beginning of the wilderness journey. At the end, in Numbers 20, there's another incident where Moses, God tells him to speak to the rock, and he strikes the rock, and God says, you're not going to enter the time. You didn't do what I told you to do. But water comes forth from the rock. I say here, Paul's identification of the rock with Christ accomplishes two things. First, it emphasizes the analogical character, the analogy, of Israel's experience with the Corinthians. Both are nourished by Christ. Second, it stresses the continuity between Israel and the Corinthians, who by their idolatry are in the process of repeating Israel's madness and thus are in danger of experiencing their judgment. I don't know what 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 to say about this rock incident exactly and Paul's reference to Christ here. Uh, they, they struck the rock. It talks about the rock that followed them. It's, a, it's, a, it's not exactly clear how this exactly happened uh, because we see the rock here in Exodus 17, the rock later in Numbers 20. Somehow God provided sustenance throughout that wilderness journey for them through this. And Paul is saying this actually came ultimately from Christ himself in some sense. Remember, in the Old Testament... Christ appears at times. These are called Christophanies, where Christ will appear in some form. Usually the angel of the Lord is identified as an appearance of Christ before his incarnation. It's called pre-incarnate. Christ now has a human body. He'll have a human body for the rest forever. He is now the God-man. He'll always be the God-man. But uh, until that incarnation, he was just spirit. He was God the Spirit, God the Son. But he could appear in human form, in pre-incarnate forms, and he did in the Old Testament. This may be one of them, apparently, Paul is saying, this reference to the rock here. He doesn't explain a lot of the details here to us, though. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So they're testing God. They're not believing God. They went into idolatry. Their bodies were scattered. In verse 5, Paul draws a strong contrast to what he said in verses 1 through 4. Nevertheless, Paul concludes that despite the spiritual privileges that were similar in many ways to the Corinthians, that is, they had a kind of a baptism. They went through the sea 
they had a kind of Lord's Supper. They drank from that rock. They had a spiritual, they had a spiritual food and they had a spiritual drink. So, uh, in spite of those, including the presence of Christ Himself to nourish them, they failed to obtain the prize. So Paul is setting in motion here the following section in which he'll specify the reasons. Why did Israel fail? What, what caused their failure in the wilderness? Why was it that their bodies were scattered in the wilderness? He's going to explain that now in verses 6 through 13 and warn the Corinthians. They're in similar danger. About Israel, Paul says, God was not pleased with most of them, as is evidenced by the fact their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. All of them had experienced a kind of baptism. Sort of an analogy. A kind of Lord's Supper. Yet the vast majority of them experienced God's judgment and failed to gain the prize. Therefore, Paul says, you Corinthians had better take heed, as Paul will say in verses 6 and following, just as God did not tolerate the, tolerate the Israelites' idolatry, he will not tolerate your idolatry. Well, let's look at that. Application of the example. Warning against idolatry, verses 6 through 13. This section continues the narration of the events of the Exodus by explaining that the reason for this review is to warn the Corinthians. They enjoy blessings similar to those of Israel, Paul will say. And like the Israelites, because of their idolatry, they're in danger of inviting similar judgment. So this section will offer specific reasons for the judgment mentioned in verse 5. God was not pleased with them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why is that? Well, let's see. Verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. This verse ties the examples that will follow to the Old Testament analogy that has just preceded. Paul says, now these things occurred as examples, referring to verses 1 through 5. Their purpose was to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. What happened, what happened to the uh, uh, Israel is set forth here in verses 6 and following. These things in verse 6 refer to the two concerns of verses 1 through 5. On the one hand, Israel had spiritual privileges comparable to those of the Corinthians. On the other hand, most of them fell under God's judgment in the desert and thus failed to attain their form of the eschatological prize, the future reward. So the following verses, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10, as we'll see, give us four examples of how privileged Israel set their heart on evil things. Remember he says, they didn't obtain the prize because they set their heart on evil things. We got to, we, I don't want, he said, Paul says, I don't want you to set your heart on evil things as they did. And now he's going to give four examples of how they set their heart on evil things. And that caused the death of most of them in the desert. The common factor here is verse 5. Their bodies were scattered in the desert. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Notice what he says. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Paul begins, do not be idolaters some of them were. One might argue that this is a general exhortation against idolatry. 
were it not for the text that Paul chose chooses to cite. Exodus 32, 6b. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. revelry. The more specifically related to idolatry, per se, would be 36a. So, here's what Paul cites. But if we look at 32, it says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival of the Lord. Remember, he built that golden calf, remember? So if you're if you're if you're warning against idolatry, you might cite thirty six. You might cite thirty two six a. So the next people the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. That's idolatry, right? You might cite that. You might wait to verse cite verse thirty one. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed! They have made themselves gods of gold. That's clear idolatry. But that's not what he cites. He cites this. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revel. Now, you see, it's in the same context. But notice what he's citing there. Um, so, instead, Paul chooses to cite that portion of the narrative which specifically indicates that people ate in the presence of the golden calf. You see why he's doing that? Because that's what the Corinthians are doing. They're going to these temples and they're eating in the presence of the idols. And that's what he wants to cite there. That's the real, even though it's all idolatry, that's the specific thing they were doing. This along with, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 8.10, if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge setting in an idol's temple. Remember we talked about that, chapter 8? Setting in an idol's temple. Won't they be emboldened? So that along with what we've seen there in chapter 10, identify the matter as eating in the presence of the idol in the idol's temple. Now the judgment in this case here was that 3,000 of the Israelites were slain by the Levites in this section. The people sat down and got up in dozen revelry and 3,000 of them were killed. Um, so this is Paul's first uh, example, implicit implicit example at least, of their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Their bodies were scattered here because they, they did this idolatry and the Levites killed 3,000 of them. Verse 8. We should not commit a sexual uh, immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. Paul now gives his second example. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. This example also specifically related uh, related to the Corinthian situation. It's also specific. In this case, there are problems with sexual sexual morality or sexual immorality, I should say here. Sexual immorality. Remember, we talked about this. What was chapter 5 about? Incest. Remember? Uh, chapter 6, they were going to the prostitutes. You remember that kind of thing. So there's a problem with sexual immorality. Apparently the feasting of the Corinthians and the idol temples also at times involves sexual play. Now we know that's true in the ancient world. When you went to the temples, there was sexual activity associated with worshiping there in the temple. Um, the Old Testament event that Paul refers to here is uh, Numbers... Uh, Numbers 25 here, 1 through 9. 
while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual morality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. This fits Corinth exactly, see, doesn't it? So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and God's anger burned against them. So Paul is citing Old Testament examples of Israel doing kind of a similar thing. Verse 9. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. The third example, we should not tempt or test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes refers to the Israelites' complaint in Numbers 21, 4 through 7, Psalm 78, 18, uh, where they spoke against God and against Moses because they had to eat manna rather than than more ordinary food. Remember, they people grew impatient. We talked about this. You brought us out of Egypt. We don't have any bread. There's no water. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, bit the people. They died, and so forth. So um, Moses, uh, Paul adapts this illustration of the Corinthian present conflict with him over the right to attend the cultic meals in the pagan temples. Because Paul says, we should not test Christ and we're killed by snakes. This is the incident here where they they tested God. They complained against God. They grew impatient. They spoke against God. Why did you bring us out here? No bread, no water. We detest this miserable food. Uh, Paul adapts this illustration of the Corinthians' present conflict with him over the right to attend the cultic meals in the pagan temples. So he's tying these events together. Uh, they were, in a sense, testing Christ in the Old Testament. Testing God, testing Christ. The Corinthians are testing Christ, putting him to the test by what they're doing. We've made a profession of faith. I mean, remember Pastor Ken, <laughs> when, when people get baptized, it's, I've never heard this before like he does, but he always says here, and do you promise to follow him all the days of your life? You remember that saying that he says at the end of baptism? That's quite a commitment. No, I think it's genuine. It's what we should, do, what people should do. But you're promising to follow him all the days of your life. Then you say, nope, I'm heading off into sin. You, you know, you're violating, you're really testing God by doing that if you're going against that. Verse 10, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. This last example, probably prompted by the previous one, in which the people complained against both God and Moses. The image of grumbling characterized the whole wilderness experience of Israel. Numbers 14, 16, uh, numerous experiences here, but especially uh, Exodus 17 here, uh, the whole Israelite company camped at Rephidim. They quarreled with Moses. Numbers 11, the people complained about the hardships of, uh, in the hearing of the Lord and so forth. So there was numerous experiences here. Their grumbling about food kindled God's anger against them. Here, like in Numbers 11, fire came from the Lord and burned them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Paul's reference to the uh, angel here, maybe the destroying angel, maybe the angel at Exodus. You remember the... the uh, angel passed through and destroyed the firstborn and so forth. Um, the destroyer who entered the houses, strike them down, maybe that reference there. 11. 
These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul concludes the four examples of judgment in the desert with a very direct application. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. These accounts of Israel should serve as cautionary tales for the Corinthians. Warnings or admonitions are a means God uses to bring about our spiritual maturity. The Old Testament is not simply interesting ancient history. It is God's history of redemption, which is relevant to those on whom the culmination of the ages has come. The final clause on whom the culmination of the ages has come indicates that through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ marks the turning of the ages. The old is on its way out. The new has begun to come. We're in the final stage here of world history. The coming of Christ and the beginning of the church age has set the future irresistibly in motion. So all of us, whether we're Jew or Gentile, born free, uh, bond or free, male or female, as Paul says, who are saved by His grace alone, we are the new people of God. All of history has been moving towards this culmination, Jew and Gentile in one body, the church. So Christians, Paul says here, stand at the culmination of the ages. They stand at the end of history at a time when God is bringing all His divine purposes into focus and fulfillment. Verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The word so indicates that Paul is bringing his review of Israel's history to a conclusion by directly applying these warnings to the Corinthian situation. Those who think they are standing firm refers back to verses 1 to 4 to those who possibly think their participation in the Lord's and the Christian ordinances has placed them above danger in regard to attending the cultic temple meals especially since they are since they also have argued that such gods do not exist the warning which began with the with the analogies in 9:24 through 27 is that they too might fall just as the Israelites who had their own form of ordinances. This means that the Corinthians might also, as Israel, fail to win the eschatological prize, in this case, eternal salvation. Now, it's true that a true Christian cannot fail of their salvation. We believe in eternal security. Once saved, always saved. But that doesn't mean once professed, always possessed. Once a person is truly regenerate, they're regenerate. They may fall away into carnality for some longer period of time. We just don't know sometimes. God will bring them back. But whenever professing Christians are acting contrary to the commands of Christ, it is possible that they may only just be professors, not genuine possessors of God's grace. So the Bible is filled with warnings to us Christians so that we can examine ourselves to make sure that we're not deceiving ourselves. Paul will tell the Corinthians themselves in the second epistle, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And the test, really, is continuation in faith. In genuine faith. Faith, good works. The danger for the Corinthians is that they are placing themselves in this jeopardy through their idolatry. 
In the next section, 14 through 22, Paul will come right out and prohibit the idolatry in which they are engaged in the strongest possible terms. But before he does that, Paul does not want to leave the impression with the Corinthians that there is no hope for them. So he transitions to the next section with a word of encouragement in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This verse is a transition between the present section and what follows. On the one hand, it's a continuation of the warning of verses 1 through 12. On the other hand, it serves as a word of assurance leading up to the prohibition to flee from idolatry in verse 14. Paul seems to be saying that to his Corinthian friends that there is no risk of them failing, that is, failing to win the eschatological prize, as long as we are dealing with ordinary trials of the Christian life. God will help them through those that are common to mankind, but they must therefore flee from idolatry, verse 14. The clear implication of what Paul is saying is that one cannot expect divine aid when one is testing Christ in the way the Corinthians were currently doing. So what I'm saying here is when a believer persistently and deliberately lives in direct disobedience to the commands of God, that person cannot expect it to be delivered from the inevitable consequences of one's sins. Paul assures his Corinthian friends that they will not fail if we're talking about the normal difficulties of life. We all fall into sin. We all disobey. These are common things. The trials and temptations that are common to all of us, Paul says, we're all going to go through this. God has committed himself to us so that when it comes to these ordinary things, we can expect his gracious help. Paul first says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. The noun translated temptation and the verb tempted can have either the meaning of temptation, that is an enticement to sin, or may refer to what we often call a trial, an outward test. So, the Greek word, this translated temptation here, the Greek word can have two different senses. We have two English words. Greek has one word for these two different concepts, though related concepts. So, on one hand, the Greek word that's translated temptation here can have the sense of temptation. <laughs> so it's translated temptation. It can have the word of temptation, and that's what I call an enticement to sin. Or it may refer to what we call a trial an outward test. Same Greek word. An enticement to sin is an attraction to sin. It might come through something we hear, something we say, some person, something. A trial is a difficult circumstance that simply overtakes us, comes upon us. Might be a serious illness. It might be the loss of a job, the breakup of a marriage. As I say, in the original Greek, this one word group functions for both ideas, even though we can distinguish those ideas of temptation and trial. 
These two different meanings are mostly seen, are clearly seen in James chapter 1. We are told in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's the same word we have here. Then in verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God has tempted me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. So in both cases, verse 1 and verse 13, they're exactly the same words. But the meaning is different depending on the context. James is saying that God does not tempt us in the sense of enticing us to sin. But he does send trials, various trials our way, in order to mature us. In fact, our whole earthly life after we come to Christ is one great trial. Now, we know this world is not our home. And we lament, if we think about it, the sin-wrecked condition that we're in here. Riddled with disease and death and distress and problems and difficulties. But for the growing of Christian character, it's an ideal setting. That's why God has us here. He wants us to grow in our Christian character. It's a training ground. These trials I'm talking about are not just major tragedies. They're just the ordinary events of life, the choices we have to make between good and evil. In reality, temptations and trials are two sides of the same coin. They always go together. They're really inseparable. Every temptation is ultimately a trial, and every trial brings a temptation. For proof, we need look no further than the temptation of Christ in the desert. Matthew 4.1 says that Christ was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that's the same word that means trial. Why don't they translate it trial? Because the devil had an evil intent. He wasn't there to help Christ. He was there to entice him to sin. So it's translated tempted. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. From Satan's perspective, this was a temptation to get Jesus to sin. But from God's perspective, remember, Jesus was led by the Spirit into this encounter with Satan. From God's perspective, it was a trial, an opportunity to demonstrate his son's holy character. So God may send us a trial. And that trial is for the purpose of strengthening us. Every trial is ultimately for our good and for God's glory. Everything that God allows into our life. But within every trial that we go through, there's always the temptation to sin. We can go through this trial and we say, I hate God. Why does God put this on me? We can always react the wrong way. In every trial, there's always a temptation to sin. From God's perspective, the event is an opportunity designed for our good, a trial that can ultimately mature us. That's why James should say, says, consider it pure joy, he says. Consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds. Because you know, James goes on to say here, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God will not allow a trial or temptation if it does not have the capability of moving us towards Christ's likeness. God does not tempt us to sin. The kinds of trials and temptations that Paul 
says the Corinthians can expect deliverance from are those common to mankind. The common ordinary ones of life. This is expressed by the phrase common to mankind and the verb overtaken. That is, in the normal course of life, these trials and temptations simply overtake us. However, God does not promise deliverance when we knowingly rush headlong into sin, as the Corinthians were doing, by attending meals in the pagan temples. There's a difference between true testing and those who test God. By persisting in attendance at these cultic meals with their pagan friends, these Corinthians were testing God. They were deliberately disobeying God. That put them in danger of falling. The divine alternative to succumbing to temptation that Paul offers is to remind the Corinthians of God's prior faithfulness on their behalf. When it comes to the trials common to this human life, God is faithful. He can be counted on to help them. And this in two ways. First, God has pledged that he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. In other words, temptation is not irresistible. We may feel it's irresistible, but it's not. That doesn't mean it's harmless or easy to resist, but only to say that temptation can be resisted. When we fail, when we fail and succumb to temptation, it's not God's fault. James 1.13 says, God does not tempt anyone, entice anyone to sin. No matter how severe the temptation may seem in our lives, we have to remember that God is faithful. And He's promised to limit the temptation to what we can bear at the time. Second, when we're tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. This sounds like a contradiction in terms. Provide a way out so that you can endure it. There is a way out or end to whatever temptation or trial we may undergo, but that has to be seen, be seen from the divine perspective. God has a way out or so that we will not fail, but it's often not a complete escape from the experience itself. God's way out often requires a period of endurance on our part. Sometimes God's way out may not seem like a way out at all. God may simply give us grace to endure what is a continuing temptation. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul has this thorn in the flesh and he asked three times, God, please remove this from me. And uh, God says, no, I'm giving you this for a good purpose so you won't get so big-headed. You've had these revelations. You've got these great experiences. You're the great apostle. And to keep you from getting the big head, Paul, I'm giving you this thorn in the flesh. And you're just going to have to live with this. And Paul says, he's learned that my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. Remember, James 1.12 does not say, blessed is the one who resists a trial. It doesn't say blessed is the one who resists a trial, but blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Paul's point then is that in the ordinary human trials of life, one can expect divine aid. God will help us in our trials and tribulations, our temptations. But that's not the same thing as just rushing headlong into disobedience. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were rushing headlong into disobedience. The way out is for those who are seeking it. It's not like the Corinthians who are looking for a way into sin. So Paul will tell them in verse 14, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. 
Give us grace each day as we face trials and temptations in our lives. Help us to rely upon you, your word, prayer, our fellow believers, so that we might be faithful to you in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.